everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I am James Finch. This is The Finch Show. You probably already knew that, but I say it anyway at the beginning of everyone, just because tradition. Anyway, my guest on the podcast today is Violent Fenn, who has a book that just came out called The History of the Vampire in Popular Culture, Love at First Bite. It's a great book. I'm not quite done reading it yet, but I definitely will. It is a, For me, it's just a fascinating subject. As somebody who's been into all that kind of stuff from earliest memories of my life, I find it fascinating. Um, got introduced through an a mutual friend that her and I have got the book, read it, talked to her about coming on the podcast. She agreed. So we did it. We ran it, even though she lives in England and we had to deal with this whole uh, six hour time difference. Somehow we managed to make it happen. We have that kind of wherewithal here at the show. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking without further ado. Here is Violet. Okay, we're live. I am here with Violet Fenn. Um, I'm really excited about this. I have your book, everybody, Yay! so everybody can oh, see history. History of the Vampire in popular culture, and I love the tag, the love at first bite. That is just that is really great. Um, it to me, it's a fascinating subject as somebody who grew up very, very interested. Of course, my age, I'm a child of the Anne Rice novels. That yeah. was sort of my introduction into the whole thing. Um, but for you, where did the interest or fascination with vampires begin? Oh, gosh. And it's so far back that I, I've been trying to think about this because I've been talking about the book, obviously, a lot recently. Um, and it's so far back that I can barely remember. It actually came through music. Um, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And my first biggest love music-wise was The Damned. Um, the punk band The Damned and still is really um, and a friend of my dad's when I was couldn't have been more than 10 or 11 gave me he was clearing out a jukebox he had and gave me a copy of New Rose by The Damned on vinyl and I loved them and, and they were just sort of getting into their goth look at that point you know um, Dave Vania is the sole reason I've got a white streak in my hair it took me years <laughs> to do it but I copied Dave <laughs> cheers Dave um, so it went from that and then I'm old enough to I was born in 1969 so you know when a video recorders started coming out we could record things that were on late at night and my dad started recording um the universal horror movies for me so they'd be on like in the middle of the night and then me and my brother would watch them the next day because they're not really as anyone knows who's seen them they're not really horrors um so it kind of started with that you know the the mummy's hand and all that sort of stuff and I got into the sort of literally sort of the gothic element of it the look of it and the feel of it all and um it came from that because obviously the epitome of vampires to me is christopher lee as dracula so i saw his um 1958 version of dracula um and hammer all the hammer movies so it, yeah so it came from that music sort of kicked it off and then because I, I was lucky i grew up when goth was a, starting to be a thing so i've grown up with it and um then it got into the old movies because it's it's the old old versions that I really love. Um, some of the newer ones are amazing, but but yeah yeah late night movies courtesy of my dad is where it came <laughs> from. Everything fun like this always has to spawn from our childhood. You know, it's always got to be some kind of childhood memory. Um, the thing that I find most fascinating 
about vampires and you see this i think um to an extent with zombies but not near as much is the variation of the interpretation you know they they can be interpreted so wildly you know you can get into stuff like um you know like blade or buffy the vampire slayer where they're just demonic monsters like almost like just eating machines and then you can get into like the Anne rice stuff or even you know uh even the twilight stuff where it's more of a romanticized sort of out of those, which one do you have one that you prefer over others? Oh gosh. Um, do you know what? There's so many. I, I like the more classic ones. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're the old ones, but the classic look. I love Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula with Gary Oldman. I mean, that mm -hmm. that's one of the hottest Dracs there ever was. Um, because it's 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 not true to the book, despite the title, they play a bit fast and loose with the book. Um, but that to me is the epitome of that look. So, but equally, I love, I, I'm well known for, for absolutely loving the BBC adaptation of Dracula again from last year, and the Mark Gattis version of Stephen Moffat, um, and with Clay Bang playing Dracula, because that came into the modern world. He comes into, he's in the modern world at the, towards the end of it but they're still almost going by the old rules. So I suppose Dracula is my thing, Dracula himself. Um, but what we have to remember is he's, there is no template for vampires. It's been picked up over the years. You know, vampires have only existed for just over 200 years anyway, because Polidori came out with it in 1819. Um, there was a slightly earlier one. There is um, a poem called De Vampire, by um, Heinrich Ossenfelder from the late 1780s, I think, a German poet. And that is the sort of first literary version of what we would recognize as a vampire. Unfortunately, he's a little bit rapey, but yeah, but it's, the, it's getting towards the same thing. And then, um, then you've got Polidori, who basically turns his boss, who was Byron, into this idea of a vampire because it was written on the same weekend that spawned Frankenstein. They were all, he, he was one of the group at the house um, when they were writing stories um so it's a new thing because before that you had what we've I, I always call them revenants but they're more your zombies they are literally undead that rise from the grave and they they feed off people i mean the history of it goes back millennia um but we've only got the sort of glamorous vampires that we know now really and not until dracula in 1895 because Polidori's vampire was a gentleman, although a murderously blood-sucking one. Um, and Stoker sort of set the template. But even Stoker's Dracula doesn't specifically have fangs. He has sharp teeth. He's described as having sharp teeth, but that's it. Um, he doesn't die in daylight. It weakens him, but it doesn't die in it. The daylight thing comes from Nosferatu because um, I'm sure most people know by now, Murnau did Nosferatu without permission. It is literally a takeoff of Dracula. Um, he, that's what he wanted to do. And he wasn't given permission by Francis Bram Stoker's widow. So he did Nosferatu and changed some of the details in the hope of not getting sued. Didn't work, he got sued. Um, <laughs> his, his film company um, went bust. But so that thing about Nosferatu, he collapsed, you know, he crumbles in the daylight and collapses and whatever, that was done to differentiate it from Dracula. So there, there is no set thing for it. So you can write any vampire you like. It's just picked things up as it goes along. Or you've got, 
True Blood, you know, from the Charlene uh, Harris books. Um, the, the running sort of joke in that is that Bill Compton says, no, you know, we, we can see, you can see us in mirrors. You, you, we're not scared of garlic, you know, and, and all this sort of thing. Um, and his argument for that is, well, wouldn't that be a clever thing? If you convinced humans that you can't see a vampire in a mirror, then if you can see me in a mirror, I'm not a vampire. <laughs> you know, so I always thought that was really clever. Um, so th this is where I realised I've gone completely rambling off and I, I and I forget what the original point was because I do tend to just keep talking once I get going. But, <laughs> but yeah, there's no, I, I'm not sure you can say if there's a favourite um, specific vampire because a lot of them have got really interesting takes. You know, they're all so different. I love Underworld. I love Celine in Underworld. Um, Blade is just hilarious because mm -hmm. it's ridiculous. And I just, yeah. <laughs> it, it's so kitsch in its ways. And Blade's amazing. Um, but by the same token, one of my favourite vampire movies ever is Byzantium, which a lot of people haven't seen. It's from 2012 and it's a British movie set up at the seaside. Um, and they're really... They're female vampires for a start, and they're really, in some ways, ordinary people just trying to get by. Um, and I just love the difference, I think, the fact that they're all different. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's such a interesting interpretation that you can take something that, I mean, you just say the word vampire, and um, pretty much anybody in Western culture is going to know what you're talking about. They're going to know sunlight, holy water, garlic, silver, crucifixes. <clears throat> need a coffin to sleep in you know yeah. um and, and yet it can be a wide range of you can make a vampire romantic movie you can make a vampire action movie you can make a vampire horror movie and you can make a vampire kids movie yeah you know what i mean like it is so broad i was just I mean, thinking one of, the best, one of the best ones is hotel transylvania yeah i was just gonna bring that up i was watching that with my kids not that long ago and i'm like and I've got all the Anne Rice stuff in the back of my head. I'm like, and it just kind of like occurred to me. And it was shortly after that, that uh, our, our, both of our good friends, Jessica, told me about your book. And I'm like, well, that's just fascinating because that was just kind of an idea that occurred to me. Like it is such a, it is such a broad subject. I mean, you can have, you can have two kids, you know, here we've got Halloween coming up and you can have two kids wearing vampire costumes for Halloween and they can be two totally drastic interpretations of it. Yeah, yeah, they, vampires don't look, or some of them just look totally ordinary, you know, some interpretations, they're just somebody walking down the street. The Twilight vampires, who, you know, sparkle, which is weird, <laughs> but, um, I mean, the, the, I must just say, a lot of people assume, because I'm forever <laughs> snarking on Twilight, um, and people think I hate it, I don't hate it, I absolutely love it, I love it, I own all the movies, I've got all the books, I've even, I'm trying to ply through Midnight Sun on my Kindle and struggling, but I've, I've got the lot, and um, it's good sparkly fun, it's terrible, ethically and morally, it's appalling, and you know, but that's a whole different thing, but um, they are, to all intents and purposes, the ones that are the main ones in the movie, normal people, the Twilight vampires don't even have fangs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've got human, I still, I'm not quite sure how this works, how you can eat neatly. They've, they've got razor sharp human teeth, apparently. Um, so how the hell he's after creeping into Bella's bedroom and then kissing her, firstly, he's, you know, he crept in. And secondly, he's presumably gonna cut her tongue off as, as he's kissing her. But um, so they're all completely different. So they can be a normal person walking down the street, 
they can be in Hotel Transylvania, you know, it's a narky teenager fighting against her dad. You know, it's it's such a normal story. Um, and or they can be your full on Anne Rice type, gothic, glamorous, deadly vampires that look like vampires as we would perceive it. So, yeah, it's a blank slate and and it is a massive subject. I don't think I realised how massive until I tried <laughs> to turn it into a book. Mm -hmm. um, just what a massive thing I put on myself to do it um, because even though I, and I, I have to say in the introduction you know in the book because I knew people complained that I've put kept a lot about some things in that people won't like and not mentioned other ones that people love because there's no way you can cover everything it's as you say there's so many different versions they've been going since since we had newspapers you know um or penny dreadfuls varney the vampire in the mid 1800s um that was a penny dreadful and that the, the writer of that was paid by the line so he kept it going there is there are tens of thousands of pages i think in the end of varney the vampire because he was getting paid as long as he wrote it so there was definitely the um market for it from the start people have always had a fascination with it but yeah it's it's all it's amazing it's i think more than any other trope or genre there are more different varieties because mm -hmm. like well, if you go about zombies i mean zombies are zombies aren't they mm -hmm. well i thought it was interesting that i've come to the and i don't know i'm not like a social scientist or anything but one of the things that i um i always attributed to zombies and one of the reasons why people enjoy zombies and zombie shows and zombie movies is that as human beings um i believe this there's this very small part of our brain that's programmed to kill but that is overridden by societal norms. I mean, the simple fact that, you know, we just feel bad about killing people. But if you've got a gun in a field of zombies, you can just go to town and not feel bad about it, right? Mm. Like you can just open up and be like, yay. Um, so I, I feel like that there's a little bit of a fascination there. But when we switch that over to the vampire side, um, it's interesting to me, and you noted this in your book, um, how much there's sort of um, a, a sexual angle to it, how there's sort of a sensual sort of romantic dark seduction side to that. What did, what, uh, what do you, I guess I would say, <clears throat> excuse me, for vampires, was that kind of always there from the beginning or is that sort of something that evolved over time? No, that's always been there. Um, that's always been there from the very start. As, as I said, the very first um, vampire in literature as we would call it a vampire, um, is Ossenfelder's in the 1870s. And, and that was a very seductive and almost sexual assault level vampire, but it was based around sex. Um, Polidori's is the same, he's seducing women, you know. Um, other, then you get to Dracula, who is clearly after Mina Harker, you know. So most, most of it is about seduction. Um, it gets less like that as we come into the more modern era where they are still doing that and, and male and female vampires are being the seducers. Um, but perhaps because our media has spread across more genres and we are more widely read and, and we watch the watch and read these things just for pleasure now, not, not for an illicit thrill. Um, that's when you've got ones that aren't specifically that, you know, they they may just have a storyline or, you know, what, or you've got the kids versions like Hotel Transylvania, where it's more about her relationship with her father. Um, and it just happens to be funny and cool at the same time. So I think that, and also I suppose society has become more accepting 
of sexuality, uh, you know, not as much as it ought to be still, obviously, as we know, but far more publicly than it used to be. So in the 1800s, there would be an illicit thrill in reading it. You know, Varney the Vampire even is quite um, pulp novel in the way it, it's written, you know, it, even though it's quite naive in its way, it's um, it's all about how this woman looks draped around, you know, and, and it's all quite specific and it, it's the gaze, the, the reader's gaze is on the victim sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's all, it was always going to be um, based around human sexuality because it's that level of vulnerability. It's, you, you don't need to page Dr. Freud, you know, to, to draw the, the <laughs> conclusions between, You've got sharp fangs penetrating delicate necks, you know, I mean, you're not going to get more illustrative than that, really, are you? And and swooning victims. So, um, no, I think it's always been there, but only from the point where it turned into the modern vampire. Before that, your revenants and your undead were scary and that was that and you wanted to stay a million miles away from them they were not being seductive mm. um some some would have been you know in old says you've got the incubus and succubus and there were demons um seducing men and women um so some some would have been but still probably in a scary and not as entirely pleasant kind of way mm-hmm. whereas your dracula whether it's gary Oldman or you know bella lugosi or whoever there's a swooning victim that isn't quite sure that they don't want it or they do or they you know mm-hmm. so um no i think i think the modern interpretation of, of, of vampires in general is always going to come back to that sort of thing yeah mm-hmm. well that's what i thought was uh i i had to go back and i didn't even <clears throat> excuse me i put the the movie blade on a couple of weeks ago and i didn't even end up watching the whole movie i just felt like watching the open scene again because i i always kind of wondered if it was semi poking fun at that because if you remember the opening scene to that movie where there's this guy just following this woman that he met and she's like taking him to this like new swank you know dance club and they go on through these doors and these cadavers hanging and he's like well that's kind of weird but I'm going to see keep following this woman because she's super attractive and she's taking me somewhere and into this dance club and then what's all this stuff coming from the ceiling that's spraying and oh my god it's blood and oh no and then oh no blades here um it it was exactly like you said it's so over the top ridiculous I just I enjoy the living crap out of it for what it is um where did because there was and I'm semi-switching here um how you had said that prior to that it was you know the sexualization of it that it was scary because I I thought thought it was incredibly interesting on this I believe it was in eastern European eastern Europe where there was kind of this um vampire crazies where people were like obsessed that those who had recently died were were coming up what was the story behind that yeah that that was serbia in the 1700s and um there was arnold powell i can't pronounce that myself p-a-o-l-e arnold powell um had died but before he died he'd said he'd been attacked by a vampire and at that point they were still referring this is in the 1700s and they're still referring to undead sort of risen from the grave people at this point um, he thought he alleged he'd fought off a vampire um, and then he died. I think he fell off a hay cart and broke his neck or something. But and then there were, the, things kept happening around the village and they were convinced it was him and he was coming back. Um, there, there's a couple of different episodes of it all. This is all Serbia at the time. And um, basically they they got the idea that people were rising from the grave to feed on 
the other villagers. Um, some reports think they were taking revenge on people who had, who had wronged them in life and whatever. The chances are, and almost certainly, that it was consumption. It was tuberculosis going around and killing people off. Um, but it, in the days before, sort of real medical knowledge, they they couldn't see it, so they didn't understand it. So therefore, it must be magic. Um, must be the supernatural. So um, um, a chap called Flukinger was sent out to um, oversee it and to investigate um, and witnessed, by this point there's newspapers as well, so newspaper, newspapers were reporting on this and when I was writing the book I managed to find the original newspaper reports and um, so he reports them opening graves up, you know, and, and bodies looking, corpses looking as if they're bloated, as if they fed. Um, and as I was explaining to Jess Kale actually yesterday, um, the 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 um, decomposition of a human body makes that happen anyway. So at a certain point in decomp in decomp in a, in a human body, it's bloated. There's purge fluid, which is a dark reddish black fluid that is made up just of the everything um, breaking down. Um, and if you happen to open a grave at the right point, you're going to get a bloated looking corpse with what looks like blood coming out of its mouth, you know. Um, so they obviously staked them because that's what you do with corpses if you're not sure what to do, um, apparently. Um, and yeah, so, so but it was massive. And, and because newspapers were just starting to get a, a big thing um, and starting to spread everywhere, the news could be spread around. You know, you heard about it every, and there was other stories from other countries that bear so many similarities. They're almost certainly the same story and it's been rehashed in, it, and they end up being sort of the early urban legends. But yeah, that was Serbia in the 1700s. And then you've got um, Mercy Brown in New England, you had the, the New England Vampire Panic. Um, and that was, was like, without looking, I can't remember the actual dates for that, but it was in the 1800s. And um, that's consumption again. And, and again, she was one of the last of her family to become ill. And the, the other family, um, excuse my ridiculous computer um the rest of the family got sick and slowly died and she was one of the last ones now the logic then they decided was that she must be surviving by sucking the energy or the life force or whatever for the rest of the family um obviously it was consumption going going through them so um they decided she died and then her one remaining brother got sick and they decided the only cure for him would be to, they dug her up to check whether she was a vampire they took out her heart and lungs because they oh, this was a the thing they decided she hadn't decomposed so she must be a vampire um, and a local doctor tried to point out that she died in the January it was the coldest time of the year they hadn't even been able to bury her for for a while because the ground was too hard to dig um, so it was no wonder she hadn't decomposed she'd been in a chiller you know for weeks but they dug her up, they took out her heart and lungs, they burnt those on a pyre, they ground the ashes down and fed them to her brother, who fairly obviously died. Um, and the only reason for this they could come up with was that she must have been a vampire. So it's, so before we sort of glamorized it and perhaps had the luxury of a bit more scientific knowledge to know what is, supernatural and what isn't because obviously science and medicine was improving hugely in the 1800s but before that a lot of it if they didn't understand it was put down to supernatural activity um so it's easier to blame somebody else and the the one of the big points of the flukinger report from serbia was 
how all the villagers went out and they all got a bit fanatical about it and went chasing down supposed vampires but that's human nature again you know if, if everybody is taking on you need to join in with that to not be the odd one out because if you're the odd one out maybe you're the vampire mm. um you know it's that it's that um going along with the crowd uh which humans are obviously really prone to doing so yeah a lot of it was fear and and lack of knowledge of medical processes scientific biological medical processes or whatever that um people couldn't understand and it's human nature to try and put reasoning to it mm -hmm. and if we don't know we make it up mm -hmm. you know <clears throat> i can see that that um i mean that's the source of so many of i think our legends and religions we have out there is a need to explain what can't be explained you know because we don't have the the scientific knowledge or whatever what um so was if I'm understanding it right, you was it sort of the belief that um, vampirism was almost like a disease that was carried by and you contracted by being attacked by another one? It depends on, as with the interpretations these days, the histories are different wherever you look. You know, almost every culture has got an equivalent of it. You've got one culture, um, which is, I can't remember if it's African or South American, but it's the miracle chicken. You had what was basically a, a vampiric chicken spirit. It was a demon living in your chicken and you had to keep it tucked in your armpit. And if you didn't, it would suck your soul. And that was their equivalent. So it's, yeah, yeah, look at the miracle chicken because that's amazing. Um, so you can see how different the versions of them are. So some of them, it, so Eastern European particularly with the, the Serbian stuff, they thought if you were attacked by it in the, in a bit like the way we portray it now if you were attacked by it you would perhaps turn into a vampire um but you could avoid that by eating bread that belonged to the vampire so there's all sorts of weird little superstitions you could if you stole and ate their bread and salt i'm not sure why they'd need bread and salt because they're undead you know but <laughs> but the idea being you've somehow got to find their the bread and salt that belongs to the vampire and if you eat it you will not turn into a vampire um so it's an awful lot of superstition probably coming from fear you know at, at this point in, in throughout time before that you'd had plagues and tuberculosis and cholera and all sorts and people wouldn't have understood where it was coming from the only thing they understand is other people so the the instinctive thing is to blame another person for it and make a scapegoat i guess yeah that um cremating and drinking the ashes just blows my mind like at some point in time somebody with a straight face thought that was a good idea oh. and then other people agreed with them if he wasn't sick before he would have been by the time he'd done that wouldn't he oh, for sure yeah <laughs> you know but but yeah that, that sort of thing you know what was common because they had no real medical knowledge so i suppose in some ways it kind of made sense because they are doing a weird basic version of inoculation aren't they they mm -hmm. think if you take you take some of it in you might react to it and be able to fight it off so the logic is kind of there but yeah no yeah wild <laughs> <clears throat> one of the things i always thought was um fascinating and you see this a lot with vampires is sort of the what i what i guess i would call the vampire culture you know sort of this fandom that sort of surrounds it and it's been interesting um watching it evolve over the course of time um especially like i said being of the sort of the Anne rice generation i remember when the the film version of queen of the damned came out 
and I went to the movie theater to see it. And it was like a vampire convention, like everybody who was there. And of course, the, you know, the Anne Rice vampires were the, you know, the, the crushed velvet yeah. and the long hair and sort of the, I guess you'd call like 19th, 18th century gentlemanly, you know, sort of French aristocrat kind of, you know, and so you saw a lot of that. Um, and then you turn around and when the Twilight movies are coming out, by then I'm in my 30s. And by then I'm just, you know, at first, I, I've since I think grown up, but at first was sort of like fanboy offended. You know, those aren't vampires. Don't give me that crap. <laughs> Mr. Sparkles over here. No, that's not how you do it, you know. Okay. Um, but you end up appreciating it for what it is that, you yeah. know, it's it's another interpretation. And I can, I, I guess it's one of the, sometimes with that, and I'm off on a side tangent. Now you end up more upset with the fandom than the original art of work. You know, that that's kind of where I, I came to with the Twilight thing. Like once I sat down, because it, the interesting thing is I read the first book, Twilight, before it was huge. Hmm. You know, a friend of mine, like it had just come out and a friend of mine, I'd never heard of it, didn't know anything about it. And a friend of mine at work was like, hey, I just read this book. It's about vampires. It's really good. And I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm not going to Yeah, I did one. exactly the same. Read it really early on. Yeah. Yeah. And I read it. I'm like, oh, okay. That's kind of an interesting interpretation. I, I kind of like the some of the angles they took with it. And then it was like overnight, you know, the big, you know, teeny culture exploded all around it. And then you just have to be like, eh, I don't like that stuff. You know, you can't openly admit to anybody that you like Twilight or you might get beaten in the street. Ah, well, well, if any, anyone's in that, in that position, which I, I have been as well, there's, um, I've got to give them a shout out. There's an amazing Facebook group called Twilight Sewer Posting. Um, and it, it, it actually, the main group is Twilight Shit Posting, but um, it, there's an offshoot twilight sewer post in it, and it, basically you're in the sewer and you can say what you like about twilight and it, it's a running joke that everyone loves it enough to hate it as well mm -hmm. so you know they snark and shred but they love it at the same time and they're an amazing bunch of people there's thousands and some of the posts are appalling um <laughs> but i think i think a lot of people are aware self-aware enough to know it's funny you know i mean i've always said i I love Twilight, but I love it despite its faults, not because of them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and mostly I love it because it did bring things out in into the open and, and give it to a new generation of people. My kids watched it all, you know, perhaps they wouldn't have watched vampire movies otherwise. Um, but yeah, it's an appalling vampire universe. That mm -hmm. It's fun. It's fun, but it's appalling. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, um, it It's always interesting with those sort of like as we move along um the way the interpretation sort of reflect the culture at the time you know <clears throat> and I thought about that a lot and I don't know how much I'm making a stretcher but that kind of occurred to me one of the interesting things that um Anne Rice frequently talked about is how vampires especially ones who live for a long time would occasionally basically have to go into almost a coma yeah like they'd almost have to go into a really long sleep because they mentally had a really hard time just processing the changing of times and whenever they sort of reawoken they kind of needed to create another vampire from that time period to help keep them anchored um and I, I almost feel like that's almost a bigger metaphor for vampires in general that mm -hmm. every generation we have to have a new reiteration of vampires and vampire lore that sort of reflects the culture at that time and that in an essence sort of keeps the legend going per se if that makes any kind of sense yeah yeah no it does totally because <laughs> if we hadn't changed even if we just had say Bella Lugosi's version <clears throat> and everyone looked like that it wouldn't fit it wouldn't fit the cut to the, the modern culture um so yeah I totally get that that 
that it would have it has to be adapted it has to be renewed for something else even if, it, if it's renewed in a very similar way to the original because Anne Rice's vampires instead have got that old world glamour you know they're a very upmarket hammer film really you know it, it's that sort of thing um whereas in reality god if, if you lived that long you would stagnate. I mean, there's an interesting one um, for anyone who's watched the movie version of what we do in the shadows. Um, and Peter, who's the oldest vampire, he's like millennia old or whatever, is just almost silent, he's silent and just sits there because he's, he's almost ossified in himself. You know, he's in a coffin, a big stone coffin that he just stands inside it at all times. They chuck a bit of food into him and he, he barely speaks. And, and that's a really good way of doing that because you would if you'd have been sitting there sitting around for a thousand years you'd be bored shitless mm -hmm. um and also that that fact that you, you would lose some of your humanity you'd have had to have watched every single person you love is going to have died you know or you've watched you may still have your descendants but they can't know you, who you are so you're not getting the joy of your family anymore um and generation after generation have died off and some will have gone in horrific ways, you know, because that's the statistics. So in reality, if you could live forever, you would have to change. So, so that fits. But yeah, I think everyone thinks they've invented their generation, don't they? Everyone thinks it's a new thing and nothing's new. Everything's been around before in one way or another. Um, so I do think you're right in that people want a different version of their vampires. And sometimes it's, it is a bit retro and it goes back like Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula is almost, it's not quite the original Dracula, but it, it is almost Dracula. So you've almost gone back 100 years to the original incarnation of Dracula. Um, but so, and then Twilight is a modern one or Blade is almost a funny, almost a funny movie, but it's, an, it's a big glossy action movie at the same time, you know. Um, so yeah, they, they've got to adapt. I was gonna say they adapt or die, but they just don't die, do they? But um <laughs> it is a bit, I suppose that's their that's their downfall, isn't there? They can't die. Mm -hmm. They've got to keep going. So yes, I think if you were immortal, you would want to switch off for a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd want to because even in anybody's normal day-to-day -day life, we all have days where you think, oh, I wish I could just, nothing awful. You just want to go into standby for 24 hours and just ignore everything and have a break from it all. Um, and if you could never do that, especially if you're the type of vampire that doesn't sleep, because obviously that's another thing that changes depending on your interpretation of your vampire. Some never sleep, some have to sleep, some just get a bit tired. Um, so if you could, but if you're the sort that could never sleep, it's no wonder Edward Cullen was a bit antsy. Yeah. You know, he's a 108 year old virgin and he can't even sleep. <laughs> you know, he can't even sleep it off. So you'd be smart. He wouldn't, yeah. Well, at least he's not dealing with morning wood. So we'll give him that. Um. <laughs> but it would be made of marble. <laughs> how, how has he not shattered it by now? We could get into the thermodynamics of friction, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to take another exit. Uh, <laughs> the, well, the, um, yeah, I suppose if anybody who's met the, the you know, the crusty 90 year old man going on and on about kids these days, imagine if you were like 390 years old. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Like, can you imagine somebody like Lestat looking at TikTok right now and just being like, oh, I think it's time to switch off for a century. Holy cow. I don't know. I think Lestat would probably love TikTok. He'd want he probably to look would. at him, wouldn't he? 
You're not wrong. <laughs> he, he would want everyone to look at him. He'd, he'd be some cult influencer, wouldn't mm-hmm. he? I'd follow him in a heartbeat. Oh, sure. wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't everybody? I mean, I, I, I think I'd, I'd follow Armand, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, because Louis needs a slap. Because... Ugh. He's such a crybaby. Shut up, um, right? He needs, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so 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 it, yeah. If you if you're going to live for that long, you'd have to. Oh my god, get a hobby or something. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd end up you'd be bored, wouldn't you? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. You would be a total psychopath. Like, yeah, you- because there's that thing as well, isn't there? About. Um, Vampires generally, regardless of the interpretation or what they um, what their rules are in their particular universe, it's not many of them that have got what we call human morals. You know, Twilight is, is the the ultimate one of or oh, moralistic. It's so moralistic. It's a Mormon PSA basically that movie. Mm-hmm. If anyone knows your background, that's because the writer is, and so it fits that worldview. Um, but the vast majority are who've been around for a very long time don't have lost or starting to lose the morals so you've got Lestat um you've got uh, Miriam in the hunger you know just is pragmatic she's a bit sad when her partners die eventually die off but she cracks on um and that's perhaps as well the appeal of vampires because we live a reasonably in a reasonably moral world we might not agree with the morals but there are and, and some, some of them are definitely stretched at certain times, obviously, you know, with war and all the rest of it. But human beings generally within individual cultures, we have got a set of social strictures that we live within. And that's how we keep it going. That's how we keep functioning next to each other. Um, whereas a vampire doesn't live with any of that. And, and maybe that is part of its appeal in that, they just do what they want they take what they want and we can't do that so however much we'd like to we can't do that and we wouldn't generally wouldn't because we know the consequences mm-hmm. um most people it's a running joke that I, I always think that most people are decent people they and they are um so we don't do certain things because it would upset other people whereas a vampire is going to eventually after the second or third century you're going to stop stop giving a shit aren't you mm-hmm. because humans are just going to become pets that die and you might neglect them a bit or or whatever you, you're going to slowly your, your morals are, are going to erode i think mm-hmm. with time um so maybe that's part of the appeal of them as well it is they show us we can imagine for a brief amount of time we can imagine being able to do what we want nothing can hurt us we can just do what we please um and I think that's as terrifying as it would be liberating. Maybe. Well, it's definitely an appeal to power, you know, when you yeah. think about it, like to be able to be that powerful that, because uh, so much of what we do, I think even subconsciously, we do out of fear, mm. you know, um, part of the reason we're like, man, I would just, that guy, boy, he's been, if I could just go over there and sock him in the face. But you don't want to get arrested. You don't want to deal with yeah. the legal trouble. You don't want to deal with the social fallout. But if not, if it matters to you and yeah. human beings just literally become motes of dust that move slowly past you as you move along. Yeah, I think even if you were Mother Teresa, when you became a vampire by about, like you said, by about the, you know, second century or so, you'd just be like, you know, I just don't even care. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Yeah. And 
because that feeling of superiority would eventually override everything. You know, people yeah. in them, of themselves like to think they're superior to other people or other, <clears throat> excuse me, other races or cultures or something like that. But when you had a biological reason to genuinely believe that mm. and everybody else is passing you by and every single person you meet is weaker, mm. more fragile. Yeah, yeah, you would, you'd lose yeah, that. How, how could you not decide that you were the top of the pile and you could just do what you pleased? Mm -hmm. and, and also, by the time you've been around for millennia, you're invariably rich because you've been around long enough to, you don't need to eat or drink or whatever, you know, you're not... You don't have much consumable cost in your life. You know, you can steal the money and nobody can catch you or you can earn it and you don't die off. So they're always invariably rich anyway, which is another appeal of it. You know, you've got limitless strength. You're never going to get old. You know, of course, you're going to think you're better than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Why would it matter if somebody pushed in your way in a supermarket? You know, you just shove them because what are they going to do to you? What, what are they going to do if somebody locked you up and you can break out? it's it's it, you know so yeah it, it, it's i think most vampires would end up being very egotistical they'd be psycho sociopathic wouldn't they mm -hmm. well that's what i always thought was interesting of the um and again i know i keep going back to the Anne rice thing but that's just my generation the uh, you know the difference between lestat and louis in those books and the difference in the way they viewed the world and you know here was louis who was trying for a long time to sort of hold on to that humanity and and everything and even then that began to slip mm. you know by the by the time he got to the modern like what or the time the books were written you could tell he was kind of starting to whereas Lestat kind of had a violent introduction to it to begin with and kind of had a violent life prior mm. to becoming a vampire viewed you know to him you know humans were rats so you just you lived off them and did what you had to do yeah louis tries to hang on to his humanity he doesn't want to be it does he you know and he's he tries and tries and tries to hang on to it and then realizes i think he's got to sink or swim and he's got to go with it or it's going to kill him anyway sort of thing um and and yeah he he sees his own humanity slipping as he goes along to the point where he cares less and less and less about his humanity slipping. Mm. It matters less to him. Whereas you're right, you know, Lestat, he, he just doesn't give a shit about anybody. <laughs> he, he doesn't, he only cares about his Lestat, you know, mm. and, and that's it. And that that last moment in, in the movie version, you know, when it's him in the car and, and you realize it's just amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it, it's weird. I think even the ones that you see are trying to um, hold on to their morals. Although sometimes it does come around the other way. When you look at um, the Francis Ford Coppola version with Gary Oldman, the movie version, we realise in the end he is being powered by trauma. You know, he he wants his lost love back. He he's a very sorry and sad character. Doesn't stop him being evil. He just wants to get. So you end up with a bit of a dichotomy. You kind of feel sorry for him, but he's still an awful person. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's probably what makes them so fascinating because there are so many. There are infinite different versions of them um, that there is one to suit everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, as, as we've said, even down to, to kids, you can put a small child in front of versions of vampires. Yeah. Um, you know um and it's it's that human fascination i suppose with the idea of not having to die because the thing that scares most people more than anything is dying mm -hmm. 
So I think that is the pull. It's the the, the massive velvet gowns are obviously a, a, a brilliant bonus, and I'd quite like to wake up in the morning dressed in my swishing velvet gown. <laughs> um, and but the, I think the major pull of it is the idea of immortality because death or dying of the, either themselves or people around them frightens people more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you could avoid that, they obviously what everyone forgets is the fact that that does mean you would be alive forever. Right. What happens when you get to the end of humanity and everyone dies off and then, then, then whoever's left knows who the vampires are because you're all the only ones left. Mm-hmm. And then you'll die out because there's no humans. Right. It's um, quite a miserable existence, isn't it? Being there until the absolute actual end times. Mm-hmm. So to, to actually live with the knowledge that you are stuck with it until the end is quite terrifying in itself. Mm-hmm. That's um, that's I always find that to be such an interesting sort of mental exercise. Like if you were offered immortality right now, mm. would you take it? No. You know, and, and I have to say, I, I thought it's interesting when I was in my 20s, I'd be like, oh, hell yeah, you know, <laughs> let's do this. Um, and now I'm like, oh, my God, no, like no. that just sounds like a nightmare. That just sounds like um, it would be a slow mental death is what it would be because you just wouldn't be able to handle it. Eventually. Yeah, no, absolutely. And interestingly, is it say, absolutely same in the 20, in my twenties. Yeah. I'd have ripped your arm off for that, for that sort of offer. I'm in my fifties now and you'd think I'd be keener on it, but actually, no, absolutely not. I am happy with the, I'd like to live to a ripe old age, you know, but I'm happy with there being a finite span of life and death. Also what people always assume is, that you will live, you you would be immortal in some youthful, amazingly glamorous body. Well, anyone who's seen The Hunger knows that that's what David Bowie thinks he's got, and he doesn't. He suddenly ages, mm-hmm. so he he has been made immortal. But what he hasn't been given is eternal youth. Um, so when he tries to stop feed, when he stops feeding for a bit, and, and he start, he suddenly starts aging, um, and he's going to be. It's not how it turns out, but. He is going to be locked into a box just as a crumbling corpse for the rest of eternity. Mm. So there is that thing. And I asked an awful lot of people for this book whether they would take immortality. The vast majority of people said no. Whatever the age said, said no. Um, One or two went with it and said, yeah, absolutely. I could travel everywhere. I could do whatever I want. You've got endless lifetimes. You could do everything. Um, the vast majority of people said no because they just can't comprehend that amount of time and it only works if you are given you know eternal youth as well as eternal life Um, so which then shows how self-obsessed I suppose humanity is as a whole because we can't imagine being a little bit decrepit you know we want to live it with a perfect working body or whatever mm-hmm. um so yeah no 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 if, if you don't ask me in my 20s yeah I'd, I'd absolutely snatch your hand off and bought a lot of black velvet but in my 50s no no there's going to come a point where i'm tired you know i'm right. going to be done at some point <laughs> thanks i'm tired now never mind what i'm going to be like in my 80s right well i think about that i'm like god oh, you know if i was uh, made into a vampire in my 20s it'd be one thing if you did it to me now i'd be so angry i'm like you tell me i got to deal with bad knees for the next couple hundred years exactly. give me a break I, <laughs> I, I get up in the morning i'm not upright until i get to the door you know i have to unfold myself i don't want to do that every morning for eternity thanks 
<laughs> no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> the um, do we know? Um, because you had said that like Bram Stoker's Dracula was kind of like set the template that we all look at. Um, what do we have any idea what is motivation or muse or creative idea was behind coming up with that? No, there's lo lots and lots of theories about it, but not really. He his background at that point was interesting. Um, he was um, a big friend of Oscar Wilde, who um was prosecuted for homosexuality and went to prison and eventually he died after he came out of prison but it was sort of injuries and mental health issues from from his prison sentence that really killed him um so he knew what it was like to be an outsider uh, um there is a, a massive long-running theory that bram stoker was gay um I'm not convinced he was gay. I think he was almost certainly bisexual. He wrote some very florid letters to Walt Whitman, the poet, um, in, a, in a very sort of almost sort of look at me and trying to attract him kind of way. They're amazing letters. Um, but he was happily married and whatever uh, to Florence Balcom, who incidentally was Oscar Wilde's first love. So it was all terribly tangled. Um, <laughs> and she chose Bram Stoker over Oscar Wilde and Oscar was heartbroken despite actually really being a gay man. Um, so no, he he was living in the 80, in the late 1800s. You know, there was an awful lot of death and destruction going on around him. Um, there was, there's an argument that maybe some of it was influenced by the Ripper murders, which were sort of seven or eight years previous to, to well, no, but probably about 10 years previous to Dracula coming out. I don't think it is. I think, I, I don't think that's relevant. I think it was just, he, he was, a, he worked in a theatre at the time anyway. So he was theatrical in his ways. He was assistant to Henry Irving, the theatre manager, um, and didn't earn a massive amount of money. So I'd imagine, and he, and he did write anyway. So I'm, I, I think a lot of it was probably just, he just wrote and it was, he, like a lot of writers, I think took a lot of little ideas from different things and pulled it in together. But there's certainly, he was certainly aware of the effects of Victorian society. You know, the idea of it being buttoned up and this sort of thing, which anyone who knows anything about the Victorians know they weren't. That's what you saw, mm -hmm. but they were anything but buttoned up under the surface. So he knew all about that surface calm and it all rolling underneath sort of thing um he i have issues with the way he writes lucy westenra who is one of my favorite characters out of any vampire story because she is it, it's the the madonna whore trope you've got um, mina harker as the version of writer b and you've got lucy westenra who even in the book you know and the um gary oldman version ac accentuates it even further but even in the book, you know, she has these three suitors that all want to marry her. And Lucy says, why should I choose one? Why can't I have all of them? Why can't we all just be happy? Um, and is very forward for the day. And she's what they would soon come to call a new woman, you know, capitalised the new woman. Um, so there are certain social issues. You know, she gets punished for being sexually aware and, and open and, and this sort of thing. Um, so he he touches on things, you know. He 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 touches on the politics of what it would have been like to be a woman and and that sort of thing. And and I do sometimes wonder if he perhaps wanted to think about the idea of escape himself. 
because I think he probably wasn't living quite his true life. Um, there's a theory that he actually died of syphilis. Um, he certainly had the death certificate is written in a way that was written at the time is the um, I can't remember the terminology now there's a particular medical term um, a motor ataxia it is and um, it's a certain brain disease type thing that, that is usually late stage syphilis so generally when that's on a death certificate it's assumed that the person died of syphilis that said he was still writing you know a couple of weeks before he dies I, think, I seem to recall it was quite close um, and you'd have you would have been you'd have had dementia by that point had you had you got late syphilis there's certainly questions about what his true feelings about different people and places were i've spoken to his great great nephew dacre i think i don't remember how many greats dacre's got these days um and he you know the family opinion seems to be just that he just wrote a good book you know and there is that angle we are looking for reasons for it you know, and that's human nature again. We look for reasons. Why did Polidori write his? Because people don't ask so much about that. But Polidori wrote his because he got an idea from actually from something Byron wrote. Um, he took that and he turned that into the vampire. Um, and it was actually published under Byron's name to start with because the publisher knew it would sell more copies. And there was a, a big kerfuffle about it. But it got Polidori's name on it. And he really just used... Byron was his boss at the time and then they fell out um he used Byron as a template for that you know and that's just a story they're not all not everything has to have huge deep meanings it doesn't mean it can't have them but then they're, the, they're the meanings that we're putting on them right you know there's a modern tendency to see vampires as this um ancient like the ancient text and what does it say and and this sort of thing they're just books mm -hmm you can have different versions you can make up any vampire you like and it's okay it will be right because it's your version of the vampires there are ideas of what we would now consider a vampire actually more like what we would consider now is way back in history so you you get your revenants and your whatever you undead in, in between but if you go way back um you've got sort of blood drinking seducive demons gilgamesh uh, the 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 king Gilgamesh and we're going back to the Sumerian king list now which I think is 3400 BC so a long long way back and he's written um I can't remember never remember which way around it is I think he's a Lilu and the women the female version is a Lilitu um one way around or the other and um he's listed as that on the Sumerian king list um and as anyone knows who's read the Sumerian king list at this point they're saying people are living for hundreds of years so maybe they did maybe Gilgamesh was uh, you know a vampire also Lilith who was Adam's first wife in the bible who conveniently gets cut out an awful lot um she was Adam's first wife and she was created equally from the clay and she's equal to him but she refused to be subordinate to him because they were created equally so she was cast out of Eden and very rapidly the stories turn Lilith into a baby killing monster who drinks the blood and and this sort of thing um so there are old old stories i think it's the um astraya who is from the sefer hasidim which is the jewish book of the pious i'm really dredging my memory of the right titles now <laughs> which i think is in the 13th century um she drinks blood through her hair so there are blood drinking demons and and they were bringing them into sexual 
child even back then king james who's the same king james that wrote the bible that rewrote the bible for the king james version of the bible that everyone knows today he also in the 1500s wrote the book of demonology in which he goes into great detail about he's clearly given this some thought and he's working out the logistics of incubus and succubus and how a male a, a demon could steal human a human man semen and get it to a woman in order to to use it himself to impregnate a woman and get there quick enough before it went cold so <laughs> this is king james you know who's putting some real thought into the shelf life of human semen for the use of demons so it, it goes around in circles and the stuff so, people came up with back when they didn't have netflix you just sit and concoct <laughs> the weirdest things you know <laughs> but yeah but this is the thing even king james you, you know he was thinking about it the, the the jewish books are mentioning things about it the sumerian king list mentions it this is going in circles and circles over as far back as we've got records mm -hmm. so we're just put we just have that we have the um privilege and the luxury of having more ways of of spreading the the ideas and the thoughts you know we've got bigger closer net bigger and closer networks you know mm -hmm. because 20 years ago i wouldn't be able to have this conversation with you because we're on different continents right and now, it's a normal thing my brother lives in italy and i live in england you know but i just ring him because mm -hmm. it's so it means you can stories get passed on and also in some ways i think it's a shame because stories amalgamate as well whereas if you look back you've got these distinctive cultural versions you've you've got your um incubus and succubus you've got your armpit chicken you know you've got your weird bloaty corpses um but now they're all sort of homogenizing so i think it's great when you get some that really kick it up like come back to blade i love blade it's ridiculous and if anyone has not seen it there is an adult swim version of that scene mm -hmm. which is amazing and everybody needs to watch it it's of that scene in, in the club um it's just wonderful um so you've got that and it, it, it's all power to it you know and we things like what we do in the shadows i, I dreaded the tv version because i thought that i love the movie so much um, and Johnny Brew, who plays Deacon, was kind enough to contribute to this book, and we've ended up being friends. And um, and I put off watching TV because I thought it'd be terrible, but it's so funny, and and that is normal life. That is bringing the creep tacit looking vampires. You know, Nadia is such a goof. You know, mm -hmm. the the look on her face, but she's got the rolling eyed look of so many women over the years. Like, what the fuck are they all talking about? You know. <laughs> And, and, it, and everybody recognizes their faces you know mm -hmm. so it's good when something like that is a bit different and it's not the the cliche because i think otherwise we're at risk of everybody just seeing the same thing so yeah yeah that was me rambling off down my rabbit hole there <laughs> well and uh, i'm sure you've heard they're uh, they're uh they're rebooting the blade series right now mm. and mm. i'm really excited about that i i feel terrible i can't remember the uh the main actor's name that they signed um to play blade but he's a phenomenal actor he's done I only, i've only just heard about it in the last couple of days and i don't know anything about it at the moment but i know it's being done that's all i've heard so i'm ex i'm excited about that right up there were you ever um Excuse me, were you ever a fan of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer series? Do you know what? That is the one that everyone's always shocked because I barely watched it. Mm -hmm. I was the wrong age 
for it. I did have to watch some of it to write this book because otherwise I wouldn't have known what I was talking about. Um, and I loved it, what I saw. I watched some of it from the very, very beginning because that's what appealed to me. Um, and I knew it. it was always on TV. I've got my brother's four years younger than me. So, you know, it's crossed over a little bit over the years. But I was probably that little bit too old for it. Mm -hmm. like I said, I'm in, I'm in the 50s now. So it was kind of, by the time it was coming out, it was a bit young for me. Um, but that's a similar thing again. I mean, if you're going to have a high school vampire scene, have the vampire killer in the high school. You know, Buffy, right. she would kick <laughs> Cullen's ass, wouldn't she? You know? Oh, yeah. Good night, Sparkles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was, because um, people of my age, that was always the thing, because I was like right at that ripe age. Like, I want to say I was like 17, 18 when that show premiered. Mm. And everybody my age had a crush on Sarah Michelle Geller at that age. And yeah. I mean, I could get into the thing. Like, it was really great that um, you had a show that was centering around a, a, a very, very strong female character to begin with. I mean, that was just great in and of itself, culturally speaking. Um, but it was funny that, you know, they could do the whole vampires were unthinking demons because they didn't have a soul. Mm. you know but right off the bat you've got this mysterious brooding handsome guy who just happens to pop in and savor at the last minute and then stoically leaves only to find out well he's a vampire too but he's different because he has a soul and that's the burden that he carries and then it it triggers the female oh i could just fix him mentality and you know so it was that one and then of course it uh, splintered off and angel had its own series i want to say for four or five seasons or something like that and it's just kind of you know generationally it's, it's legend um but I, i'm still waiting for abraham lincoln vampire hunter to claim its proper place <laughs> in history that it deserves it's we're not there yet time will tell on this one yeah but I got a gut feeling. <laughs> but, but some of these ones, some of these ones that are looked down upon at the time are amazing. Um, the uh, is it Dracula Untold? Yeah. The other one. Now that I loved. I mm. loved that. Everyone said, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible. Um, and it's just a bit of easy watching eye candy. I thought that was really quite clever. Um, it was done because they did it and they just went for it, you know. You can tell it's a little bit over the top or, or whatever and it's a bit naff in comparison to other ones but they do it with conviction so it, it's it's wonderful some of these some different interpretations are just amazing you know i'm totally going off on a tangent now i saw an interpretation last week um a theater version of, of dracula and this is this thing again about how it gets people can change anything because dracula's way out of copyright now so mm -hmm. people can do what they like with it i saw a theater version um, by a theatre group called Imitating the Dog. Um, and it's called Dracula, the Untold Story. And the, the idea is there's only three people in, in the actual play. The centre character is Mina Harker. And the idea is she's, it's set in 1965. And the idea is she has been killing people for the past 70 years since 90, and, and they say, well, Dracula was killed in 1895. <clears throat> but she was infected by him. So she kept going and she's been killing people. And it's almost funny in places. Um, she has been killing people. It's a moral thing again. She's been killing people before they could get evil because this is a parallel universe that it's set in. So she talks about killing Mussolini. She talks about having to go at Hitler, you know, and, mm. and this sort of stuff. Um, 
and that is that the so sort of Mina Harker is made to be the main character of that and it's such a clever production I mean this probably only applies to people in the UK but if they can see it watch it because it's amazing the stage sets are incredible um but but going back to the, the film ones yeah things like um you know the, the terrible terrible versions of them or even oh the Gary Oldman one Keanu Reeves I love Keanu what the hell is going on with his accent <laughs> I mean I'm British through and through but I don't know anyone that speaks like that <laughs> and it but it doesn't matter because it's it is kitsch and it's ridiculous because these are blood-sucking creatures of the night as far as we know they do not exist mm-hmm. So they don't have to be clever or cool. Vampires are not cool. They're funny and silly and murderous and terrible and wonderful. And there's nothing cool about it. People need to stop worrying about it. They're they're interesting and they're funny mm-hmm. and they're fun. And and that's what I think I I really would wish people would get. They're just they're fascinating. They are fascinating because really they are they are. Uh, an illustration of our own psyche Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways so that's my vampire theory i love it the um it's it's gotten better over time because there used to be a bit more of a social cultural taboo about it you know i even remember being like 13 14 years old 15 years old and reading Anne rice novels and you kind of come i semi kept it underneath your pillow because certain people might might not approve of what it is you were reading um and then twilight comes out and it's like every 14 year old's like i want to be a vamp you know um yeah. <laughs> yeah suddenly it's socially acceptable right yes well okay well we are um we are up against the clock um so i'm going to let you go i cannot cannot thank you enough for agreeing to come on this is fascinating um and i'm going to show it again to anybody who's watching on youtube here it is by all means it is great. <laughs> i'm not quite done with it yet <laughs> but I've made a good chunk of the way into it. And I will definitely be finishing it. It's it's a fantastic topic and it's very well written. It's witty, it's fun, it's Thank informative. You. I mean, everything you want out of a book like that. So <laughs> so fantastic job for me. <clears throat> um, but I'm, I'm going to let you go. Anything you uh, want to say on the way out? Uh, no. Follow, if anyone's watching, wants to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, I'm at Violet Fenn on both of those. Um, I've got another book out next year, but that's about the Regency, but it does cover Byron. Um, everybody's favorite fuck boy um so uh yeah no that's it come follow me and chat i like talking to people so if anyone anyone wants to come and find me on social media and have a chat and ask me anything they want i am there fantastic <laughs> all right well thank you again so much thank you for having me <laughs> you i've really you. enjoyed it yeah, absolutely Okay, so that was the podcast with violent fen hope you enjoyed it i certainly enjoyed making it uh, as a reminder her book a History of the Vampire in Popular Culture, Love at First Bite, is available just about everywhere. Definitely on Amazon. Jeff Bezos can get that to you in like two days. It's phenomenal. Anyway, um, again, hope you enjoyed the podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening and continuing to support, like and share, and all that fantastic stuff. Before I get out of here, I just want to say I love all of you. Hope you take care of each other, and we'll talk to you next time.